First uh, John chapter three. If you want to turn there, I'm going to read the text for us, and we will get started. First John chapter. 3, starting in verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. That's Jesus. Verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He does appear, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Can you fix this, Drew? I'm getting some feedback. Um, As we get into our text this morning, I want to tell you about something that's going on at the church that we're working towards with one particular family in the church. We have a family. um, Darren was up here today um, helping lead worship. He leads sometimes in his wife, Julie. And and what they're doing is they're seeking to, um, well, they're in the process of adopting a child. And um, they're going through the process. They're paying what they need to pay, which it costs quite a bit of money. They're doing the paperwork. They're meeting with the people. They're getting their home checked out, all that stuff. And and they're getting closer to adopting a child. And one of the ways that we want to help with that is by creating a separate fund at the church so people, as they give to the adoption process, can give through the church, get a tax deduction, and all that and be for people in their family or friends or in their networks who want to give through us. It'll all go towards them. And it's for us if we would like to give towards that as well. One of the things um, in addition that, that they have in mind and that we have in mind as a church is that we would like, to, we would like for um, the funds that go towards them for the adoption, for that not just to be a one-time thing, but for that to be an ongoing ministry where we're actually helping people, church members who are seeking to adopt children and helping them financially if need be, or to help women outside the church or families outside the church who choose not to abort their child, but choose to put their child up for adoption to help pay for some of those fees. And a million kids get killed every year via abortion. And uh, we'd love to uh, be a part of countering that and blessing people and, and, and helping with this process of adoption. So that's for you to know, but it's a good segue into our text this morning because I was thinking about it this week and and we have a family, maybe some of you have adopted and so you've been here. Maybe some of you were adopted as children. So you have a different perspective on this, but you understand where we're coming from. We have a family who is wanting to adopt a child. And once they adopt that child, it's not their natural child biologically. Once they adopt that child, it will be their child. They will love that child. The child will have all the legal rights and and social standing and privileges and benefits and love as their natural biological children will have. There will be no difference. It'll be part of the family. He or she will be part of the family. And as we read 1 John chapter 3, the first thing we read in this passage of Scripture is about God's fatherhood and His love as a father for us. John says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called such a great love that even we should be called children of God. That we are called children of God. You and I start out in the world as orphans. Similar to the child that Darren and Julie are going to adopt, he or she will start off as an orphan, put up for adoption. You and I started off as orphans, 
spiritual orphans, spiritual nomads, thirsty in the desert, spiritual desert, wandering around with no place to go. And God came, and in love, he, he brought us into his family. He saved us and reconciled us to himself, and he made us whole and brought us into his family as his sons and daughters with he as our father. This is where John starts today. Here's the first point for your outline if you're a note taker. We are God's kids. You are God's kids. For those of us who are Christians, one of the ways that we describe our standing with God is that we are his kids. I want you to remember John's purpose in writing this epistle. 1 John chapter 5 verse 13. John says, I write these things to you who believe, those are Christians, in the name of the Son of God, that you may know you have eternal life. He's writing to Christians to help assure us that we do have eternal life, that we are in right relationship with the Father and with the Son, and that we're empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's John's purpose in writing this book. And might I submit, there may be no greater way to give God's people that type of assurance than by going straight to the fatherhood of God and and observing and understanding and discussing and John teaching our relationship to God as his kids. And here's the first thing he says, that we're God's kids. In addition, you're loved by God. You are actually loved by God. See what kind of love the Father has for us, that He's given to us, that He displays on us, that He pours out on us, that we should be called children of God. I mean, I'm convinced that one of the best ways for us to understand our relationship with God, it's one of the things that we get confused on. That's the the cause of so much confusion in our lives, is not understanding who we are in Christ, how God views us, how God loves us. I mean, the, the prized possession in Christ that we are of God's, we get confused on that oftentimes. We have, we have wrong views of God. Even for those of us that love God the most, we have sinful flesh and we have distorted views and we get confused. And one of the best ways to understand, I'm convinced, our relationship with God is by understanding a parent's relationship with their kids. That is one of the best ways to understand our relationship with God. Parents, you know this. You know the deep, full love and affection you have for your kids. You can relate with what I'm saying. I'm sure singles, maybe some of you are singles. I don't want to alienate alienate you. What I would say is that maybe you had great parents and you can see the sacrifices that they've made for you and you can kind of catch a little bit of what I'm saying that way. But I would also encourage you, spend time around parents with kids. Spend time around parents with kids. Until God blesses you, should he bless you with the gift of children, spend time around parents with kids and get to see all the stuff that goes on. You get to see the parents' affection for them and their love for them. That'll help you understand a bit more about how God loves you. That'll give you a little picture of that. There is a deep affection and love in parents, from parents to children that cannot be manufactured. It's not man-made. We see this across generations and across cultures and all different types of people. Right? It's part of God's common grace towards us that we intrinsically have this deep love and affection for our children, no matter who we are. I remember one time I was driving with a friend and he started having some car problems. I think one of his engine coils overheated and we had to call a tow truck. And so we're sitting on the side of the road in San Diego somewhere waiting for a tow truck. And so this guy finally comes 
we get in the tow truck, he loads the car on the back, and he starts driving. And this guy's a rough and tumble type guy. You know, he has tattoos everywhere. He has like six packs of empty cigarettes in his tow truck. He has his name, like Hank or something, embroidered on his jumpsuit. Um, he's missing a few teeth. He's bald. He's not that any of those things are wrong. It's just his style. That was what <laughs> Hank was doing. And uh, he has grease all over. His fingernails are dirty. His language is very colorful, that sort of thing. And we're talking with him. We're like, all right, cool. This whatever. You know, we're talking with Hank and ask some questions he's explaining to us ah, I've been with AAA for this and whatever and um, finally we somehow get to his family and, and he had a few daughters from what I recall this was several years ago but there was a noticeable distinction he was talking about his job and how he you know, didn't like it that much and was upset about it and his boss was me and all this stuff then he gets to his daughters and, and his demeanor his attitude, his tone, his language I mean, he, there was a visible change he went, he went from rough and tumble type of tow truck, greasy tow truck driver to tender, affectionate, loving father. You could just see he was telling us his daughters are in ballet and they were, you know, what they were doing and how much he loved them and how awesome they were. And you could just see a change. It's like we, we weren't even there anymore. He was now just explaining what his daughters were like and how much he loved them. And you could tell there's a deep affection for parents and their kids, no matter what parent you are, no matter what generation or culture it's built into us. We also see the love for parents to their children revealed in how much pain children can cause. I I know a guy who, um, godly man, loves the Lord, faithful husband, faithful father, he's actually a pastor. Three of his kids are serving in ministry. They love Jesus. They're walking with Jesus. They know Jesus, and one of them doesn't. One of them doesn't know Jesus at all, doesn't care about Jesus, doesn't care about God. He's a decent kid. He's not doing anything super crazy, but he doesn't know the Lord. And I can tell you that it's probably the greatest pain point for this person in their lives, that their son is wayward and is far from a relationship with Jesus and knowing God the Father. There's a whole parable about this, story about this, of course, in the New Testament, the prodigal son that Jesus himself tells. And when the prodigal comes home after months, years of gallivanting around, squandering his inheritance, doing weird and crazy things, he comes back home asking for a second chance, and the father is overjoyed. He's been in pain this whole time. We see the love, the deep love from parents to their children, even in the pain that the children cause because there is so much love there is so much affection there is so much desire for good that we never give up we never give in we never lose hope we never stop caring what we love most often reveals rather what we love most rather often brings us our greatest joy but also our greatest pain we all have a deep longing for love We all have a deep longing for affection. God made us that way. We have a deep longing to love others and to be loved. And in human relationships, this happens. We have a deep longing to love and be loved in human relationships. And this is very good. This is a good thing. But as strong and as deep and as pervasive and as binding as even human relationships might be, they're just a shadow. They're just a picture of God's love for us. 
John says that the Father, God the Father, has set his full, complete, total love and affection on you and on me. He's actually to the point where he's actually made us his kids. We say, we, say, we, we say phrases like this all the time at Union Church. God doesn't just forgive us and let us go live a nice life on our own. He actually makes us his kids. It's called adoption. He adopts us into his family as Darren and Julie are seeking to adopt the child into their family. He makes us his kids. John says, you are not just called his kids... Look back with me at verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. You're not merely called God's kids, but we actually are God's kids. This is not merely a good analogy, but this is an actuality. It's a fact about us. It's a fact about us. It's not just for illustrative purposes. We actually are God's kids. He views us as his kids. And the love that parents have for their children, that is just a picture of the love that God has for his children. John says uh, in chapter 4, verse 18, he says, There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. That is the kind of love that God has for his children. That we live with God, before God, under God, towards God with no fear. This is where we often get confused because we tend to be very fearful. Now, there's a right fear of God. There's a good fear of God. Or we understand he's big and he's powerful and he's God. But we should not be scared of God. We ought not to be scared of his punishment. We ought not to be scared of his anger. He doesn't fly off the rail. He's not abusive towards us. He's not like a landlord who says, if you don't get the rent in Monday morning, you're evicted. That's not the kind of God that the God of the Bible is. There is no fear in God's love. Because he has a perfect love for us. He has a divine love for us. Even when we sin, there is no fear in terms of being scared of God that he's somehow going to abandon us or punish us out of anger or divine wrath or condemnation. In fact, John says earlier in uh, this epistle, in chapter 1, he says, we can actually be honest with God because he's dad. We can confess our sins and he's faithful and just to forgive us. John says, chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, that when we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's the propitiation for our sins. Okay, so John says, God is Father, he's dad, we can be honest with him. Does God like sin? Of course not. Does he enjoy when we sin? No, it grieves him. But we can be honest about it, and he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us, get us back on track, and get us walking in sanctification. Okay? We got My daughter Mabel is the best at this. Like, we all should learn from her because she is so, she is so honest. I mean, it's incredible. Both my kids are pretty honest. All, well, Laura, I have three kids. Laura's too young to be honest or dishonest. Um, Haddon and Mabel are both pretty honest, but Mabel is unbelievably honest. Above her bed, there's some paint that was chipping off. I don't know why. And uh, anyways, pointed out to her and said, Mabel, don't, don't stand on your bed and peel that paint off. A couple days later, walk into her room. The paint that was peeling off is now peeled off. It was gone. There's a big gap on the wall where it's, there's paint and then there's not paint. And you can see what happened. And we said, Mabel... Did you do that? And she just goes, yeah. <laughs> like, should I be mad? It's, 
when, when we're honest with each other, right, it's like, okay, well, that certainly alleviates a lot of the, a lot of the anger. Um, but sometimes she'll even go out of her way, most of the time she'll go out of her way to tell me that she did something wrong. I bought a new TV recently, and um, I had this new TV, we had it up against the couch and the box, and I said, okay, I'm, we're setting it up, and I said, don't touch this TV, I need to go get a screwdriver, I'll be right back. And I'm in the garage getting a screwdriver, Mabel runs out and she goes, Dada, I was running down the hall and I ran into the room and I had touched the TV. <laughs> I'm like... Well, don't do that again. I told you not to touch it. Don't do it again. But how can you be angry? She's so honest. She does that stuff all the time. All the time. We ought to be more like that with God. God, we can be honest with you. Your dad. Your dad. I can confess my sin to you. I can confess when I made a mistake. I confess when it was an accident. I confess when I... It was willful sin, and I'm now convicted. There is conviction, but there is no condemnation. He's dad. He's dad. On God's Love, uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible, which I'd recommend for you and your kids. It's an excellent little Bible for their first Bible to read through. And the Jesus Storybook Bible defines God's love like this. His never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. That is the type of God of love that God has for us. Another critical aspect for us to point out regarding God's love is that His love makes us His kids. God's love makes us his kids, not the reverse. It's not our action or our love or our devotion or our commitment to God that then he looks at us and says, okay, now I'm going to set my love on you. It doesn't work like that. It works the opposite. God first loves us, and that love is what makes us his kids. We are made his kids out of love. We are creations of his love. John chapter 4, verse 19, John says, we love God because he first loved us. Okay, listen, new birth precedes new behavior. New birth precedes new behavior. New birth always precedes new behavior. You see, there's so many institutions and professionals and counselors and programs that have large budgets, people give lots of money to, people spend lots of money to go to, and they're all focused on behavior change. Behavior change. I'm not saying that's bad. That can be very good and very helpful. It's simply insufficient, however. We don't first need new behavior. We first need new birth. And John says new birth begins with God's love. Okay? When a husband and a wife come together to make a baby, we call it making love. And out of that action, that act, that connection of making love a new child is born. Our birth is a result of two people loving each other. The man and the woman both reflect God in different ways. They come together to be together what they could never be on their own. That is a reflection of God. All of that is a picture of God as our Father and our new birth, our spiritual new birth from God. It's an act of love. And human beings are a picture, a reflection of that. God's love causes our birth. We are God's kids and we are loved by God. John continues, second part of verse 1, and so we are God's kids. Then he says, the reason why the world does not know us is it did not know Him. It did not know Him. Beloved, verse 2, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He does appear, we shall be like Him because we shall see him as he is. 
We're strangers to the world. We have a new citizenship, a new family. Okay, this is not a minor status change. It's a whole person change. It's a whole identity change. When we become a Christian, it's not just some extra status we mark on social media. Love God. Like, that's not the main thing. You can put that on your social media all day long if you want. That's totally fine. But that's not what makes us a Christian. That's not all it means to be a Christian. It's not just some sort of minor status change. It's a whole person change. It's a whole identity change. It's a whole family change. Again, as the child that our friends, the Lightfoots, are going to adopt, that baby will have a whole identity change in terms of their, from, from everything to the home they live in, to the name they have, to the resources they have, to the people who love them the most and pour into them the most, to the friends that they'll have. Everything will change. It's the same thing with us spiritually. When we become children of God, everything changes. And John says, because of this, we are strangers to the world. The world does not understand this relationship. Okay, We know this practically. Have you ever seen a Christian student and at a public high school or a public college? Do they look the same as everyone else? After class gets out on Friday, do they look the same? Well, I certainly hope not. In fact, I can tell you almost certainly they don't. If they do, then we'd have to say, you need to really check yourself, brother or sister. If you don't look different, then there's a serious problem. Of course they look different. If you look at college students or even older high school students, oftentimes part of the whole goal of the college experience is to see how much we can drink, to see how many people we can sleep with, to see how high we can get, to see how many things we can experiment with. I mean, what, what, what can we do? How can we sow our wild oats in such a way that it will maximize our fun while we get a college education? And for a Christian, the goal is completely different. And therefore, their lifestyle is going to look completely different. Young singles as Christians look completely different. The way that they handle dating and courtship looks completely different. The way that we handle marriage looks completely different. How many of you got married at a young age, and while you were engaged as a young person, maybe in your young or mid-20s, people came up to you who maybe didn't have any bad intentions, but they didn't love Jesus, and they said, why are you getting married so young? Why are you getting married so young? I mean, seriously, your frontal lobe's not even developed. Or whatever, you know. Don't you want to go out and do some stuff? Don't you want to have some fun? Why are you going to get locked down? To them, it just sounds like, oh, such a hassle, such a burden. Why do you want to settle down? Don't you want to go? Have, don't you want to go have some fun? And for a Christian, we're like, we have, we're on totally different sides of the tracks here. We view this completely differently. Hey, I love you, but no, I don't want to go do any of that. Christian parents and how they raise their children ought to be different. Older Christians. Maybe your kids are growing or grown. Maybe they're out of the house. How you spend your time, energy, resources, it looks different. You're not chasing down the latest hobby and spending all your free time on hobbies. But Not that hobbies are bad, but you're doing different things with your time, energy, your resources, your money. Older Christians who are mature in the faith seek to be builders of God's kingdom. Well, that looks a lot different. That looks a lot different. Look at us here. I mean, it's Sunday morning. Is it your day off? So you're here outside. It's hot. There's no bathrooms. You come here on your day off to sing songs, to hear long sermons, to give money, to serve. Some of you have been here before 10 a.m. And you're here every week serving faithfully, setting things up so we can do church. I think, was it, Michael got out here at like 7.30 this morning, set up all the chairs. Uh, Jeff and Matt, they've been here since 8 o'clock just doing all kinds of stuff. What's the deal with that? Isn't that weird? It's a little strange. 
Then on top of that, you give money. Think about that. That's different. That's different. A lot of people I know right now don't love the Lord. They're at home. It's my day off. I just want to, I just need to rest. I just need to relax. I just want to drink some coffee, hang out. Maybe I'll try church sometime, but it's nice, sunny. I'm going to go to the beach. Look, there's nothing wrong with going to the beach. There's nothing wrong with hanging out at home. My point is, is that Christians in obedience to God's word, we come, we serve. That's what God's word tells us to do. We come and we give. That's what God's word tells us to do. We come and we're in community together and we sing together and we receive God's word. That's what God's word tells us to do. And so we come and do it. That's different. That's different. It's starkly different than the world. We're strangers to the world. Here's the key. Verse 1. The world does not know us. And the reason is because it did not know him. That, there's the key, church. The world does not know us because it did not know him. John says that's the reason. The world does not know Jesus. We are united to Jesus and are becoming like him. And therefore, the world does not know us. John in his gospel, chapter 15, verses 18 and 19, he says, quotes Jesus here, and Jesus says, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. You ever felt ousted? You ever felt discriminated against, maybe even as a Christian, or felt like you were looked down upon? People make fun of you? Have you ever been excluded or ostracized because of your faith? Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of that, therefore the world hates you. When we realize that we're sinful. When we realize that we're sinful, we have sin in our hearts, we have sin in our actions, in our minds, motive, deeds, and our thoughts. We are sinful people. We realize that when we look to Jesus in repentance and faith, we hear the gospel, we hear how he's taken care of sin, we hear how he's loved us, how he's died for us, how he rose in victory. He accomplished all of that to pay for our sin and to give us new life. We realize that. We look to him in repentance and faith. And as that happens, we, we, we receive new life by God's grace. He, he saves us and He makes us His kids. And God becomes our Father. Jesus becomes our elder brother. And we receive new birth. And that new birth leads to new behavior. And that new birth leads to new behavior. The world did not know Jesus. We are united to Jesus. We are becoming more like Jesus. And therefore, the world does not know us. Look, in this life, we are still battling sinful flesh. We are battling sinful flesh. We'll never be perfect in this life. It's not the case John's trying to make. But now, as Christians, though we're battling sinful flesh, what we're doing now, as we battle, is we're seeking to look more like our elder brother, Jesus. We're seeking to live more like our elder brother, Jesus. John says, verse 2 and 3, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he does appear, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. We're not there yet, but one day we'll see Jesus face to face. Our transformation will be complete, and until then, we hope in him. Verse 3, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Until then, we hope in him. And we seek to look like Him and live like Him and be like Him. That's what we're seeking to do here on earth as Christians. And this leads us to our next point. We have two points this morning. 
first is you are God's kids. The second is you must live like God's kids. We are God's kids and we must live like God's kids. And verse 3 brings us there. Everyone who hopes in Jesus purifies himself as he is pure. John will now contrast. That's what Christians do. And now John will contrast those in God's family, Christians, from those who are not in God's family. Christians hope in Jesus and seek to be like him. Non-Christians, those in the world, do not. Verse 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Verse 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Verse 10, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Those in God's family hope in Jesus and seek to be like Him. Those in the world don't hope in Jesus and do not seek to conform themselves to Jesus, but instead practice sin. John says that sin is contrary to God. It's against God. Sin dishonors God. Sin disregards God. And he says that sin is lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Living as if God's law doesn't apply to us. Living outside of God's law. Disregarding God's law. One author, one commentator defines lawlessness in this way. Defiant violation of God's law. Okay, ultimately, lawless, sin and lawlessness is putting ourselves in the place of God. Now, you might be here today, and you might, maybe you're not a Christian, and you might be thinking, well, I don't, I don't, I, I've never asked anyone to worship me. I don't believe in God. And sure, I do some things that maybe, not be, maybe they're not good, but I, I don't think I'm God. I've never asked anyone to worship me. I, I've never done that. Well, when we've received God's law, He's revealed Himself to us in Scripture. He's commanded us to live a certain way and do certain things and, and to be a certain way and, and worship Him. And we say, well, no, I'm not going to do any of that. I'm just going to do what I want to do. I'm going to create my own law. I'm going to do what's right for me. What we're saying is, God, your law doesn't matter. I'm going to set myself up to where my law matters, and so therefore I'm God. I'm placing myself above you. You might never have asked anybody to worship you, but functionally lawlessness is putting ourselves in the place of God because it's disregarding all that God has commanded us to do. Remember, there are false teachers in this church. They've come into this church. They've, they've, they're, some of them have been members who have changed their mind about Jesus. Some of them have come from without. John 2, 26, a few verses prior, John says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. That's part of the purpose of this letter. He wants to give us assurance in Christ. Part of that is, is writing against those who are trying to deceive these brothers and sisters. John is writing to correct course. And here's what he says for us Christians. Don't make a practice of sinning. Don't make a practice of sinning. You might say, that seems obvious. Yeah, it's obvious, but you know what? We need to hear it over and over and over again, and every generation needs to hear it over and over and over again. Because we so easily get into this place where sin becomes no big deal. Sin becomes kind of a lighthearted thing. Sin is merely just missing the mark. It's just making big mistakes. No big deal. God's got you. He's got your back. He's got you on the right course. That's weak teaching of sin. That's not what the Bible teaches about sin. John says here, don't make a practice of sinning. Verse 6, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Okay? You You couldn't be much more clear than that. 
Verse 8, the second part of verse 8, the reason that the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Chapter, or sorry, verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning. He cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. John is not saying that all Christians will be perfect. Okay, we've already covered that. He's not saying that. Chapter 1, verse 9, he says, if we confess our sins, that he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us, we can be honest with God. He's, he's dad. We can be honest with him. In chapter 2, he says, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate in heaven, Jesus Christ the righteous, an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous, he's the propitiation for our sins. John is not teaching that we won't sin. He's not teaching that we'll be perfect in this life. He is saying that habitual, ongoing, willful practice of sin ought to never be a part of our lives. Here's why. Verse 5 of John chapter 3. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins. And in Him there is no sin. Verse 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came to take away sin and destroy the works of the devil. That is why Christians don't make a practice of sinning. Jesus Christ came to earth as the God-man. He lived in our place. We've all lived messed up lives to varying degrees. Even the, the best and most moral and purest of us have still sinned in God's sight, and Jesus comes as the perfect man who's never sinned, and he lives a perfect life full of righteousness. And then he dies on the cross to pay for our sins because our sins have stored up God's wrath. Jesus goes to the cross and says, I'll take the place of sinners. See, only God can absorb the wrath of God, but he also had to be a man so he could actually stand in our place. And so he absorbs God's wrath on our behalf. That is what is happening on the cross. And then he is resurrected to new life and he gives us that new life and now we are in him. All of that truth about Jesus has been applied to us as Christians and now all of that being true, John says, if that's who you are, you can't keep on sinning. You just won't keep on sinning. You will have sin in your life. But you won't love it anymore. You won't desire it anymore. You won't treasure it anymore. You won't conceal it anymore. You won't store it up anymore. It's not your thing. When you do sin, you'll be convicted. No, instead you seek righteousness. You seek truth. You seek goodness. You seek to be like your older brother, Jesus. As a result of being united to Christ, there is a decisive break from sin. Now look, if we're honest, that, these verses can, should, should be, probably should be a bit unsettling for us. Oh, what do you think? Do you have persistent sin in your life? I bet you do. I know I do. So we look at this and it's like, okay, that must mean something else. That must mean something different. How about selfishness? Do you have habitual selfishness? You're like, no, 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 that's not what he's talking about. Okay. He's not just talking about grotesque sins. Are you habitually selfish? Do you think about yourself first and most? You're like, no. Well, then you're prideful. (laughs) Boom. Are you prideful? 
I mean, do you think highly of yourself? Do you always talk about yourself? Do you view yourself as better than other people? No, I don't view myself as better than other people. Functionally, practically, do you view yourself as better than other people? Do you put other people's needs before your own, or are you always putting your needs first? Are you dishonest? Do you have an honesty problem? Like, well, I'm not lying about big things, just kind of here and there just to get by. I mean, do you, do you have an honesty problem? Do you have a pride problem? Are you unteachable? Are you stiff-necked? Are you stubborn? Are you hard-hearted? Are you mean? Are you just like, mean, mean? It's not nice to be around. Are you lazy? Slothful? Unreliable? Are you plagued with worry or anxiety? Distrust in God? Are you impatient all the time? Do you have a temper? Charles Spurgeon said this, Almost every sin nowadays has a pretty name to be called by on Sundays and silver slippers to wear in fine society. The paintbrush and the powder box are much used upon the wrinkled countenance of sin to make it look fair and beautiful. To hide the nakedness of sin is the great desire of Satan. For thus, he hopes that even the better sort may fall in love with a decent evil. See, sin is not just uncontrollable personality traits. Sin ought not be relegated to modern scientific language. Sin ought to be called sin. Sin ought to be called sin. Whether it's a more respectable type of sin, impatient, or a very unrespectable type of sin. Sin must not be ignored or just accepted. I'm just being real. I'm just being honest. Well, sometimes the things that we're honest about are sinful things. We have sinful thoughts. Sometimes us being real is, what that means is, our sinful flesh is coming out. The goal is not to be as real as we can. The goal is not to be as honest as we can. We do want to be transparent. But we also need to realize, man, if I'm being real and ugliness is coming out, i got to call that sin. I can't dress it up in some pretty little dress and say, it's just who I am. I'm Italian. After all, I'm Irish. i got a temper. Runs on my family. Nothing I can do about it. No. No, not according to Scripture. John's purpose is not to scare us. It's to make us aware of and vigilant against sin. We need a right view of it. Sometimes this process is not overnight. It can take a while. Sometimes we have besetting sins. And once we become aware of those, we realize, gosh, I, I need to break the, the, the grip sin has on me here. I know it's broken in Christ, and now I need to purify myself as He is pure. That can take time. We need to be honest about that and do that in community and accountability and, and under care. We all have sin. And look, it's one of God's greatest graces to reveal our sin progressively. Have you noticed that? When you first become a Christian, you're like, dude, a week ago I was doing crazy stuff and now I'm so much better. Like, I'm hard, I mean, I'm sinful, but it's like way better. I'm changed. I'm a changed man. Nobody changes overnight. Nobody changes overnight. Nobody changes in one day. Nobody changes in two weeks. We feel that way though, right? Not bad to feel that way. If you're a new Christian, you're like, oh my gosh, my life is so different. Well, it is different. It is. But you know what? You still got... We, 
The process of sanctification is a long one. Nobody changes overnight. Our position changes overnight. Our position changes in a moment. God snatches us out of the grave spiritually and raises us to newness of life. But then after that, the process is a long one. Nobody changes overnight. So we have a process of sanctification that we, that we go through, and God reveals this to us progressively, thankfully. If I, if, I knew how sin, like, if I knew how sinful I was even right now, my awareness of sin, if I knew that right when I became a Christian at 19, I probably would have just dropped dead. It probably would have been too depressing. God reveals it progressively to us. We realize this, the older we get as Christians that I'm much more sinful than I thought. And yet God has much more grace and love for me than I ever imagined. John says, as we become increasingly aware of sinfulness, we seek to purify ourselves. As our awareness of sin increases, our awareness of pursuing Jesus increases. That is the vision of the Christian life. That is the vision of the Christian life. Killing sin and pursuing Jesus. That is the vision of the Christian life. The Christian does not okay with sin. The Christian does not love sin. The Christian tries to kill sin and pursue Jesus. That is the vision of the Christian life. Anything that teaches otherwise is a lie. That's what John says in chapter 1. I'm going to leave you with this as we're considering the vision of the Christian life, killing sin and pursuing Jesus. We must know, we have to know that Jesus, for this process, Jesus and Jesus alone is our pattern and our power. Jesus is our pattern and our power Look with me at chapter 2, verse 6 of 1 John. Chapter 2, verse 6. John says that, um, yes, chapter 2, verse 6. John says this, whoever says he abides in him, that's Jesus, whoever says you and me, if we say we abide in Jesus, then we ought to walk in the same way which he walked. Okay, that's pattern. That's pattern. And we look at Jesus, we look at his life, it's recorded for us in the Gospels, and we say, that's the perfect man. That's the man I want to be like. That's the man who lived the perfect life. He, in fact, perfect is true. But do, do you know that Jesus is the only normal man? Do you know that? Everybody else is abnormal. We're all weird. Jesus is the only normal guy. His life is the normal life. It's the perfect life, but it's the normal life. Everything else is distorted by sin. Jesus is the only one who lives a life undistorted and untampered by sin. So it's like you want to be just you just want to be normal then we look at Jesus. We look at Jesus. He's the pattern, right? Theologians over the years have called this Christus exemplar. Christ is our example. He's our example. He's a perfect man. He's a normal man. He's undistorted by sin. And we look at his life and we follow him. He, he, he's our Lord. He's our savior. He's also our brother and our friend and we can we can follow him. We can look like him. He's our example, but he's not just our example. He is not just our example. We also receive our power from him. Look with me at 1 John 4, 4. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, even one those in the world, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Jesus is our pattern. He's also our power. He's Christus exemplar. He's also Christus victor. Christ is our victory. Jesus has won the victory 
over Satan and sin. He's satisfied the wrath of God. He's done all of that on our behalf. He's defeated sin and destroyed the works of the devil. And now his power is in us. Literally, John says, greater is he who is in you than Satan who is in the world. Jesus Christ lives in us through the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Christ actually has taken up residence in us, and we have His power. We have access, Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, to everything we need for life and godliness through His power. See, we have someone to look at and follow. We also have someone who lives in us who is empowering us. Listen, for those of you that have kids, you know this, and for those of you that don't, you can imagine our kids have all the resources, all of our resources at their disposal for their good. Amen? Amen? Now, it doesn't mean, here's my life savings, you know, take it and do what you will because you're my, it's like, no, no, no. We have, we give them everything that they need at the time that they need it for their good. As wise parents, we know what they need. We know what will be good for them. And so they have, all of our resources are available to them for their good. Church, if we know how, if we being sinful people, Jesus says, know how to give good gifts to our kids, think about God in heaven. The perfect father knows how to give the best gifts to his kids. If all of our resources are available for our kids for their good, man, you better believe that the perfect father in heaven, that his resources, that Christ, our elder brother's resources are available for us, for our good and for our growth. Everything we need for life and godliness. Church, you are God's kids. You are strangers to the world, but you are loved by God. And now together we are pursuing Jesus Christ by His grace and with His power. May we do that faithfully this week. Father God, uh, we thank You that You are a good Father to us. You're a perfect Father. You're a loving Father. You're a Father who's rescued us out of the world to the degree where we're strangers from the world. You're a Father who has given us all of the resources, God, of, 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 of your, from your home in heaven, from your very character and person and power. We have everything we need from you. We have a perfect example in the Lord Jesus Christ to follow, an elder brother, a friend, and Lord. And we have all of the power God, that he had in his earthly ministry from you, Holy Spirit. And we pray, Lord, I pray for myself and for my friends. Would, God, would you give us the grace to be humble enough to ask for help this week? As we seek to live and as we seek to repent of sin, as we, as we seek to pursue you, God, be gracious to us, be good with us, and remind us, God, we need to access your power. We need to seek your face. We need to seek your person for our good, our growth, and your glory. Amen. Amen.